welcome to the analysis.news podcast. I'm your guest host, Greg Wolpert. I'm recording this podcast episode a few days after a new wave of Black Lives Matter protests, following a decision not to charge the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor. Of course, as usual, there was plenty of repression against the protests, which took place across the United States. What the protests and the police repression highlight is the extent to which inequality, resistance to inequality and injustice and the repression against resistance fit together. One sociologist who has argued that this is part of a worldwide trend is William I. Robinson. As it happens, he just released a book on this topic called The Global Police State, published this month by Pluto Press. Bill Robinson joins me today to discuss his book. He's professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and is the author of numerous books on the topic of globalization. Thanks for joining me today, Bill. Pleasure to be with you. So your book actually covers a lot of ground, including your larger theory of globalization and uh, global capitalism. But uh, um, let's start with the issue at hand, the global police state. Why has it become a global phenomenon at this point, and how does it express itself? Yes. Well, we can't, the starting point for any discussion of the global police state has to be the crisis of global capitalism. Of course, I, I finished this book in October 2019, so I could not see the pandemic coming, but the system was already in an acute crisis. And I'm going to suggest really the most, the most acute crisis of its 500 years, that is world capitalism, well before the pandemic. And the only thing the pandemic did is to aggravate this crisis and aggregate, aggravate everything pushing us towards an intensification of global police state. And certainly the crisis that we're in is multidimensional. There is the ecological dimension, um, uh, which is an, makes it an existential crisis. Uh, and then there's the social dimension of the crisis in the sense that billions of people around the world cannot uh, survive. But that only becomes a crisis, that social dimension, until and unless these billions of people rise up. And that's taking place now. But I think we need to focus on two other dimensions of the crisis. One is what we call the structural dimension. And that is that the global economy has been increasingly stagnant. And in the face of that stagnation, the building up of a global police state is a way of continuing to throw firewall on the dying embers and stagnant embers of a global economy. And I'll get into this in a little more detail uh, in a little while, but the, this structural dimension of the crisis is driving global police state. And then global capitalism is facing a deep political crisis of legitimacy and of hegemony. And global police state is a response to this multidimensional crisis of global capitalism. Uh, I would say that we're in a moment of inflection, an extremely dangerous moment. Um, we are slipping into uh, to the threat of fascism, uh, but also this moment opens up tremendous opportunities for emancipatory projects. Um, cap the capitalist states have been unable to cope with the crisis and with the pandemic, which has exposed them as instruments of wealth and of corruption, and it has pushed these states since the pandemic got underway to intensify global police state. You mentioned um, the Black Lives Matter uh, uprising in the United States, but here the global police state is on full display uh, around the anti-racist protests. But I want to suggest that the concept of global police state is really essential to understanding where we're at in September 2020 and the nature of global capitalism and its crisis. It's really an analytical and a theoretical framework um, this helps us understand everything unfolding now, including the anti-racist uprising in the United States. Um, you know, and I'll, and I'll summarize my, my response to your question by saying, 
for me, there's three dimensions of global police state. The first is the extension and intensification of uh, transnational systems of repression and social control uh, and warfare. And this is to contain the actual and the potential rebellion of what I call surplus humanity, the vast the, the several billions of people that are marginalized, and the global working class in the face of unprecedented inequalities. Such inequalities in global society require extreme repression, and that's the first function of global police state. But secondly, building up systems of warfare worldwide and deploying those systems of transnational repression and of social control, all of this is immensely profitable. And it has helped keep the global economy going in the face of stagnation. And the third dimension of global police state is this um, move toward in, towards political systems that are increasingly, uh, we can characterize as 21st century fascism. Now, these three dimensions of global police state, again, this um, extension of repressive systems around the world, um, the making profit through warfare and repression, and the move towards fascism, uh, each one individually is not necessarily new, but they can't be separated from one another. And we need to see how they're intertwined in a new way that signals this extremely dangerous phase in global capitalism with this crisis as the backdrop. Now, um, what are some of the, well, I guess what I want to start with is um, in terms of the, this crisis, I mean, you outlined a number of different crisis points. And one of the ones that perhaps might, um, that people who don't follow, you know, global economics so closely might be puzzled about is your comment that there's been a, a stagnation. Now, what, what is that stagnation about and how does it manifest itself? Because, you know, after all, just before the pandemic hit, uh, we had, you know, 4% uh, uh, unemployment rate, you know, the, the stock market was booming. Uh, in what ways do, does this the global um, stagnation really manifest itself? Sure. So let's, we have to start that by, start that response by talking about global inequalities. And many of the listeners are going to be familiar with the uh, data that 1% of humanity now controls more than 50% of the world's wealth. But the next uh, piece of data is the more significant one. And 20% of humanity, that portion of humanity that can still consume within global capitalism, controls 95% of the world's wealth. That means that 80% of humanity has just 5% of the world's wealth. And that this intensified inequality is a result of capitalist globalization in recent decades, starting in the late 20th century. But what does it mean? It means that the global economy has the ability to produce and pour into the global market all of this wealth, all of this output. But the global market cannot absorb that output because 80% of humanity cannot consume. So the deeper, uh, the, the, the more extensive and deeper the inequalities go, the more the global economy slips into stagnation. Now, you mentioned that there was low unemployment and there's a, a positive levels of growth in the last few years, but we have to see why. What has been driving that growth up until now, apart from global police state? One is unbelievable speculation in the global casino, financial speculation. So um, the real global economy produces goods and services worth 75 trillion dollars every year. That is um, goods and services that people want and need and can consume. But financial speculation is $1.4 quadrillion. So what's going on here is that the transnational corporations, what I call the transnational capitalist class, has accumulated enormous profits. But those profits cannot find um, 
ways of investing, but they cannot find profitable outlets to continue to investing, so that trillions of dollars in profits has gone into financial speculation. Also, growth has continued to be, has continued forward through debt. Consumer debt in the United States is at its higher, highest point ever. State debt worldwide is now some $250 trillion. It's the highest in the world, government debt worldwide. So financial speculation, debt-driven growth have been reaching uh, their limits. They can't continue. And so global police state comes a th becomes a third outlet, a new way for uh, the incredible profits accumulated by transnational corporations to find profitable investment outlets. I mean, the examples are numerous, and this is what I call in the book militarized accumulation or accumulation by repression, meaning that capital continues to accumulate, the global economy continues to move forward through systems of warfare and, um, and repression. So just to give the, the listeners a few examples, the Pentagon budget increased from 1998 to 2011. And of course, 2001 is the key turning point here because it opens up a much more sweeping militarization of global economy uh, and society. It really brings us fully into a global war economy. But the Pentagon budget increased 98% between 1998 and 2011. And worldwide, military spending by states to continue to fuel the global economy increased 50% just between 2006 and 2015. And this does not include state secret budgets, police budgets, intelligence, homeland security budgets. I calculate that if we combine all of the state spending, just the state spending alone is five to six percent of global uh, of the global economy. Um, and this doesn't include private corporate spending, the rise of military and private security and mercenary firms, which are increasingly central to the whole uh, global economy. Warfare and repression are ever more uh, privatized, and there's numerous examples we can uh, um, we can uh, talk about. But let me, uh, Greg, give you an example of of this link um, between fueling the global economy um, and intensified systems of warfare, repression, and social control. So the day after Trump won the elections in 2016, and this isn't particular to Trump global police state, but the day after he won those elections, the stock uh, value jumped 40% of the Corrections Corporation of America, which is the largest uh, corporation uh, running private immigrant detention centers because Trump had promised to intensify the war on immigrants. And so capital massively invested in private uh, uh, immigrant detention companies. In April of 2017, there was a U.S. Tomahawk missile bombardment of Syria. Those Tomahawk missiles are produced by Raytheon. Literally overnight, the, the bombardment took place in the evening, U.S. time. By the next morning, Raytheon stock had increased by $1 billion. Also, Trump is making a lot out of this new military branch, the so-called Space Force. But this started way before Trump, and it has been the result of a massive lobbying uh, by the aerospace industry so that there would be uh, new markets for its satellites and its other space systems. The um, global market and so-called homeland security is now valued at $500 billion. That means that transnational uh, corporations can are making uh, $500 billion in profit by supplying a so-called homeland security market. The military industrial profits quadrupled from 2001 to 2011, and now the arms industry worldwide employs 3 million workers 
worldwide, and you have to add that to their families, increasing number of workers worldwide are dependent uh, on this industry. But it's not just arms, making and selling arms. There's also been this incredible proliferation of private military firms. They are now active on every continent. They are actually subsidiaries of the major transnational corporations and banks, and they're cross-invested with one another, meaning that banks and the global production corporations are in turn linked to global police state. Uh, in Russia alone, after the Soviet Union collapsed, 10,000 new private security firms uh, were created. And these private uh, military firms employ 15 million workers worldwide, Private police forces worldwide employ 20 million workers. Now in one half of the countries in the world, there are more private police, that is for-profit policing, and that's the key point here, more private police than public police. And that includes many cities in the United States, such as Detroit. The biometrics industry is worth now $35 billion. And of course, biometrics is used by states and by private uh, capital to monitor and control the movements of people through these biometrics. There's also been a rapid increase in imprisonment worldwide. Of course, with the incredible inequality I was talking about, there has to be mass repression, and part of that mass repression are system, uh, repression are systems of mass incarceration. But here's the point, that private prisons worldwide, there are now 200, they are in every continent, they're dramatically expanding, and they are for-profit. So the corporations that create these private prisons, as just as with the immigrant detention centers, want to increase immigrants that are being thrown into detention centers because that's profit and want to criminalize populations that have been outcast in order to throw them in private prisons and make profit that way. Here's another piece of data. You know, we can go on and on, but let me just a couple more examples, because this shows the extent to which the whole global economy and society has become militarized, a system of mass repression and social control, and how it is immensely profitable. So it is helping the capitalist system to respond to its crisis of stagnation. So the European Union border security program was launched in 2005, and that Spending increased on that program by 3,688% between 2005 and 2016. And this is not government spending. This is governments giving private corporations um, free reign to run these programs and make billions and billions in profits. And by the way, 40,000 immigrants and refugees died try since then trying to cross borders into, um, into Europe. So, I mean, we can go on and on everywhere you look at it, but I want to there's another dimension that we can talk if you'd like to go into that, which is the Silicon Valley global police state connection. But the point here is that any and every um, sector now in the global economy is becoming more and more dependent and integrated into accumulation of capital and profit making through repression, through warfare, warfare, through social control. So that is the economic dimension you were asking me about. That. That's the economic dimension. There is, of course, the political dimension in that the extreme levels of inequality in global society require extreme repression. And that's what we're seeing, of course, in Portland and uh, in and all around the United States with this uprising, but we're seeing it worldwide. Mm -hmm. I just want to stay with the topic briefly of the uh, over, of of stagnation, and you also put it in the content in the book. You put an emphasis on the fact that uh, that this is really also a uh, constant problem of capitalism: the overaccumulation mm -hmm. that it cannot uh, basically find markets for all the stuff that it produces. Now, um, 
clearly you're you're outlining here when you're talking about the global police state you're outlining um, a solution to this crisis, it seems, that is from the perspective of capital, that is to sell all the stuff, uh, to make stuff for the military industrial complex, basically, uh, for the uh, global police state and uh, sell it essentially to, to, to the state um, for it to use and to use it productively in the sense of, uh, of repressing the populations. Now, isn't that um, a kind of a potentially long-term resolution for this, uh, what you call a contradiction of overaccumulation? Not, not in the long term. No, no, not in the long term. I'll explain why in just a moment. But I want to mention that that global development of a global police state uh, is a solution on two fronts. Economically, it's a solution. It's a temporary solution to stagnation. How can the transnational capitalist class continue to make profits? through repression, through war, because they can't do so otherwise. So it's an economic solution in the short term. But it's also a political solution in the sense that, once again, when 80% of humanity is locked out, when even that 20% is moving downward and accelerated through the pandemic, and we need to get into the discussion of technology here because the fourth industrial revolution te uh, technologies, which are being accelerated now in the face of the pandemic, are going to mean that a significant portion, even of that 20%, is... Um, is de-skilled and downgraded, if not simply losing their jobs because of the replacement, uh, their replacement of their labor by technology. So there's also Global Police that offers the political solution to how you control the mass of humanity and how you suppress real and potential um, rebellions and uprisings. And before I go back to that economic dimension, I just don't want to forget that there's this uh, quote, I just want to point this out, that the ruling groups worldwide are terrified by the prospects of an uprising of the vast majority of humanity. And if you read the book, you know that there's some juicy quotes there expressing this. So John Rupert is the CEO of um, the Cartier Jeweler, an upscale uh, jewelry company worldwide, is one of the biggest jewelers uh, in the world. And he famously said in an interview a couple of years ago that he can't sleep at night because the prospects of the poor rising up uh, keep him in jitters every single night. Uh, one other quote here, and I will get back to your, you know, to why this is not a long-term economic solution. And it's also not a long-term political solution. Um, but here's another quote. The editor of the, the London-based Financial Times, a very important um, uh, a, you know, worldwide daily newspaper, uh, was explaining that he was interviewing extremely wealthy people in New York and in global cities. And he wrote, one thing I've heard from a lot of people, a lot of the very wealthy people these days since uh, the election of 2016 of Donald Trump is that they all have escape plans. Rich people are buying up ranches in New Zealand and creating bunkers in the Bahamas or wherever they're going, thinking that they're somehow going to be able to avoid the apocalypse when it comes. There's actually a business that operates in New York. It's a boat that will come. You can apparently pre-buy tickets if there's some political crisis or some danger moments, and then they'll come and pick you up and whisk you up the Hudson. So here you see on the political side the, the extreme fear that the ruling groups have of this uprising from below. And of course, we're seeing the uprising unfolding. But at the same time, they turn the need for repression to contain that uprising into um, profit, uh, profit making. But this is not a viable long term um, solution. I mean, there are eventually um, limits to how much you can simply turn the whole world into a battleground. Uh, in order to continue to sustain accumulation. Um, this is what 
was known as military kinesianism previously. This is a much more intensified, deeper version. But the idea of military kinesianism is that the stagnation after the post-World War II boom of the of after 1945, post-World II, there was an economic boom. As that started petering out, the government, uh, states around the world led by the United States started um, increasing military budgets. And the idea was military kinesianism uh, is a way that those military budgets will, will, um, will military spending will, will offset stagnation. And that show that created all kinds of distortions in global capitalism. In, in capitalism, I'm not going to go into particular detail, but it's not a long-term fix for stagnation. The only real long-term fix, apart from overthrowing capitalism, within capitalism, is a massive project of redistribution of wealth downward, expansion uh, and inclusion and, and integration of, of billions of people uh, into the global economy under new patterns of production and distribution. Uh, and that will only come from mass struggle to bring it about. Um but uh, I'm wondering why, why do, I'm still not sure if I completely understood why it's not a long-term solution for the, uh, in, economically speaking. I can see certainly well, why right. politically it might not be because, you know, the, the resistance will be overwhelming eventually, I think. But, uh, but still, economically speaking, it seems to be working out to some extent. And well, so what are the indicators that it's not going to work out? Right. Well, it's working out for a time being but we're looking forward into the future, it's not a long-term fix. So the US military budget is, and then of course there's all the secret dimensions of it, but I estimated at about a, at a, a, a trillion dollars. Officially, the Pentagon budget alone is close to 800 billion. So where does that trillion dollars or more come from? Well, it comes from a tax base. So on the one hand, you have incre increasing, the vast majority of people in the United States are part of the working class. And increasingly, they can't pay very many taxes because they have starvation wages or simply massively unemployed or underemployed. So the tax basis for states to to um, manipulate finance in such a way that it can expand military spending and spending on repressive systems is limited. Now, the rich want to maximize their income and corporations want to maximize their profits. So they have pushed worldwide for regressive taxation. And of course, Trump passed, but with Republican and also that plenty of Democrats and the whole transitional capitalist class was thrilled with his incredibly regressive tax bill. But what that means is that states around the world face fiscal crises. They can't mm. raise funds. And so they can print money for more global police state spending, for more private, you know, to pay for more private immigrant detention centers, for so-called border security, for wars in the Middle East. But then printing more money cre uh, creates incredible macroeconomic imbalances, the threat of hyperinflation, you know, or, and, and, and basically incredible macroeconomic instability. And that's what we're in right now. So it, it's not a long term. Mm. These, are, these are some of the reasons why it's not a long term solution. Right. Let me give you another example. So part of global police state, and we don't want to limit the analysis of global police state to state military uh, spending or repression spending. That's a significant part of it. But even taking the state out of the picture. So a, a, a um, Chinese um, uh, mining corporation goes to Ecuador to exploit the resources on indigenous lands. The And you know this because you're a Latin Americanist, Greg, and this is actually taking place in Ecuador. And so the Chinese mining company to get at some mineral in the Amazon in Ecuador, um, take, takes over indigenous lands, the indigenous rebel, right? Um, and so the mining company, whether it's Chinese or US or Canadian, 
employs private security forces. I mentioned there's 20 million private police working for private firms in the world. There's just just in Russia alone, there's 10,000 private military mercenary firms. Okay, mm. so they employ these private firms. And so again, that's part of global police state that the private firms are making profit. They're part of now the production of minerals and mining operations worldwide in order to provide security and to repress the indigenous in Ecuador. But what I'm getting at is that in turn, you eventually get those minerals, they go back to China. Those minerals maybe are used to create iPhones or iPads or whatever um, industrial goods come out of the Chinese factories and exported to the world market, but that world market cannot absorb that actual outcome, that actual prod, um, uh, output. So you keep on running one or another way you look at it, you keep on running into uh, this contradiction of overaccumulation. So it's a short term fix, which, by the way, uh, if you want to get into this, leads us to the third dimension of global police state, which are systems of 21st century fascism, where we're being pushed by these um, explosive contradictions, both the political and the economic contradictions towards more intensified forms of social control and repression coming out of the state. And that's what I refer to as 21st century um, fascism. So, I mean, that's the third part of this conversation, right, is the political need to repress surplus humanity in the global working class through global police state, the economic need or the incredible economic profitability of global police state in the face of stagnation. And the third is this threat of uh, 21st century fascism. Yeah, let, let's dig into that a little bit more. And you also mentioned the connection to uh, the technology companies, uh, which is something that most people are really completely unaware of. I think uh, we always have this tendency to think that uh, you know companies such as Google and Facebook, despite all of their problems and uh, doubts that people have about you know Big Brother uh, and the uh, you know the monopolies that they control. Mm -hmm. um, that they're in some ways, you know, still kind of enlightened or something like that. So what's the yeah. connection there to, right. to the global police state? Yeah, well, that view that these giant tech companies are enlightened is a result of their own corporate propaganda and public relations, and of course doesn't correspond in any way to reality. Um, first, we want to remember that these chilling new systems of warfare, social control and repression, I haven't even gone through all of those systems. They're there, not just police and military. Um, right. They've been made pos possible by digitalization, uh, by AI-powered systems of weaponry and, and surveillance, everything from drones and flybots to these new microwave guns to state and private data mining uh, and so forth. But we want to remember that computer and information technology and the Internet was originally developed in the 1960s by the Pentagon, by its DARPA program, in cooperation with the military industrial corporations and the early tech companies. And internet and computer information technology was originally developed as technologies for warfare, counterinsurgency, surveillance, and repression. Then we get to the 1980s and the government turns over the internet to the corporate consortiums. And that's the origins of these giant these tech giants. So the tech industry is conjoined at birth to the military industrial security complex and to global police state. And we see a four-way fusion here. The giant tech firms are interlaced with the repressive state and its surveillance and repression apparatuses. They are interlaced with the banks, with transnational finance capital, which, which invests in them, which finances them. 
they are interlaced with the military industrial uh, corporations, all of the Silicon Valley companies, all of the ones we know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, etc. They are interlocked and crossed invested with Raytheon, with Northrop Grumman, uh, Grumman, with Lockheed Martin and so forth. Google and all of the other big tech companies, they work with the Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA, the other intelligence and military agencies, with police forces. That's all coming out now with the repression of the BLM uh, protest. And immigrant enforcement, all of this repression against immigrants wouldn't even be possible without the big tech industries and its big time trillion, multi-trillion dollars uh, in profits for Silicon Valley. Let's remember that Bezos is the single richest, Jeff Bezos, the, the head of um, Amazon, the single richest man on the planet, he's moving his now have $200 billion to his name, uh, is a contractor and advisor to both the Pentagon and the CIA. So global police state technologically would not be possible without Silicon Valley tech companies, which are at the very technological and political core of global police state and are making trillions through the global police state. So I would mention that if we have this image that they're benign and liberal and so forth, that's their public relations propaganda um, and, and, and that doesn't in any way correspond to, to reality. Hmm. Now, uh, the other aspect, I think, of, um, you know, 21st century socialism that I socialism, I meant to say fascism, <laughs> 21st century fascism that uh, that your book emphasizes is also the, the extent to which it's kind of a, a global phenomenon. And uh, one of the puzzling things, I guess, that I think many people would find, uh, yeah, the thing that many people would find puzzling is that fascism is usually associated with nationalism. And... Um, so the question is, well, you know, how is 21st century fascism different from the 20th century kind? And um, and uh, aren't we seeing perhaps actually a regression towards uh, 20th century fascism with, you know, for example, Trump's, and then you've got also uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil and Modi in India and um, uh, Erdogan in Turkey and so on. And they're all in nationalists of some sort or another, or at least that's the way they present themselves. So uh, couldn't you say that this is actually uh, just a regression towards 20th century fascism? No, because there are key differences. I mean, they're both equally as dangerous. In fact, 21st century fascism might be more dangerous given the, the destructive and repressive technologies that exist now and the fact that we're in an existential crisis. And so there's a lot of overlap between 20th and 21st century fascism. But the nationalism is real political. Right. That's how you mobilize a fascist base through national politically, through through political mobilization, through nationalism and ideological and cultural mobilization. So nationalism does play a key role in the fascism that we're seeing sweeping across the world at this point. But it is a little bit distinct at an analytical level from 20th century um, uh, fascism. So 20th century, the, the difference is that between the 1930s and 1940s, on the one hand, and the 2000s, the early 2000s now, uh, the, the commanding heights of capital worldwide have now become transnational. So corporations were at one time national and competing with corporations in other countries are now transnationally integrated. The dominant heights, in other words, of the global economy are these giant transnational corporations that have no nationality and that operate all around the world. Uh, that's the key difference. But either 20th or 21st century fascism in both cases first of all they are it is a response to the deep crisis of global of capitalism it is a particular far right response to the crisis whether that's in india now whether that's in eastern and western europe whether that's in the united states 
whether that's in Brazil and Colombia. It's still a response to crisis as it was in the 1930s. The severe crisis of the 1930s, fascism was one uh, response. And fascism, whether in the, tw in the 20th century, involved a three-way triangulation. You had on the one hand react reactionary and repressive political power in the state, such as the, the Italian state or the Nazi state, that was fusing with uh, national capital. The giant for, uh, German corporations needed room to expand, and they needed the fascist state to open up that room for them to expand in competition with British and French and U.S. Uh, corporate capital. So that's the second wing in this triangulation of fascist projects. And the third is a fascist mobilization in, in civil society. So you still have this three-way triangulation, but now it is transnational capital, not national capital. But that's what's so dangerous. We're talking about 21st century fascism in the moment we're living right now, and you can see it acutely in the United States. We already have repressive and reactionary political power in the state in the form of the Trump regime. It's been building up for several decades. It didn't just start with Trump at all. And you, you have that repressive and uh, reactionary political power. You have that fusion with the interests of transnational capital, with Trump's whole program might sound nationalist, but what Trump has done is gifted transnational capital in the United States with everything that it's wanted. Regressive taxation, total deregulation, a further gutting of social welfare uh, and public spending, the, open, the opening up of, of public lands to private plunder, uh, and so forth and so on. So you have transnational capital, you have this repressive regime in Trump, and now you have this incredibly rapid fascist mobilization in civil society itself. The three of them are coming together. We see it in Portland, we see it on the ground, how they all uh, come together. And this is what makes the current moment so dangerous, really building up to this conjuncture of the elections in November. Um, so here, you know, we have the abstract discussion of the threat of 21st century uh, fascism, and we have actually the conjuncture we're in is, is bringing us dangerously close to that. Hmm. But let me add one other thing, uh, Greg, if I just may, I want to say that we want to also understand that fascism has a major ideological and political component. And you're touching on that with um, with nationalism. Nationalism is how you mobilize that fascist base in civil society. Nationalism, xenophobia, um, uh, race and culture supremacy in the United States, that's white supremacy, this idealization of a mythical past, extreme national chauvinism, um, a masculinist culture, a militaristic culture. You know, all of this is part of the package, political and ideological and cultural package of fascism. And in that sense, it's the same as the 20th uh, century. But it seems to me that uh, this 21st century fascism that you describe is um, inherently far less stable than the 20th century variety, precisely because the 20th century variety could coordinate the nationalism with national capital um, and then, of course, a national movement. Uh, whereas uh, the 21st century variety needs to coordinate nationalism with transnational capital, which are inherently, I guess, on some level must be in incompatible with each other uh, since they uh, pursue somewhat different objectives, don't they? Absolutely. And this is a really key point. 20th century fascism in Italy, uh, in Germany and elsewhere. It had a certain material payoff for the in-group in the sense that there was massive expansion of employment opportunities and other social subsidies for so-called Aryans in Germany. There was an actual material basis to fascism. There was a payoff to its supporters. I mean, the out-group was subject to genocide, repression and genocide, and those in the in-group had to shut their mouths and follow Nazi, you know, Nazi impositions. But there was a certain material payoff. 
But now we have capitalist globalization taking off since the late 20th century, deepening as we speak. And so when capital globalizes, it removes the ability of individual nation states to capture surpluses, to capture a tax base, to redistribute that wealth into any type of a payoff. So just as in the 20th century, what this what we're seeing now, but I want to elaborate, I want to touch on exactly what you're saying. It's much more on it's extremely unstable. Um, the, the project of 21st century fascism seeks to organize a mass base. You can't have fascism without a mass base. And what is that social base in the United States and in certainly in Europe um, is historically privileged sectors of the global working class, particularly male and white in the United States, although not exclusively, uh, that saw rising standards of living in the 20th century. Um, and then with capitalist globalization, have their, their, have, are experiencing social and economic destabilization, uh, heightened insecurity, downward mobility, and so forth. That's what's been taking place with deindustrialization, with capitalist globalization, with increasing de-skilling of labor, replacing of technology, of um, labor by technology, so forth and so on. The gutting of social welfare states that we've been talking about. So fascism in the U.S. and elsewhere still needs to mobilize a mass base, but it no longer has the material ability to give any payoff. So the wages of mass fascism right now are strictly psychological, strictly psychological. Um, there's a promise, and you see this with Trump's rhetoric to his own base, to restore stability, security, to relieve this mass anxiety generated by the crisis of capitalism and the inability to survive. You see that promise, but there's no material ability to carry through on that uh, promise, which means that scapegoating and um, sublimating mass social anxiety to a scapegoated community such as immigrants um, or whipping up the fear of um, so-called anarchism and chaos in U.S. cities becomes so important to this project or in India um, sublimating all of the mass social anxiety and insecurity towards, um, uh, towards Muslims uh, and towards the lower castes. So that's the key difference. And this is why, once again, there's, a, there's um, uh, an inability 21st century fascism to actually give anything to the mass base of fascism beyond a psychological wage. And that makes it very unstable. And it means that global, the repressive dimensions of global police state remain critically important for the ruling groups and for the project of, uh, of fascism. But remember, reality is driven by contradictions. Everything is contradictory. Global capitalism is a system that's chock full of every minute that we speak, all of these contradictions, explosive contradictions. So it's not surprising that the project of 21st century fascism is very contradictory and will, by definition, be very unstable. Hmm. Actually, I just want to touch on another contradiction that uh, occurs to me when you mentioned the idea of uh, that part of uh, 21st century fascism is precisely, of course, well, any kind of fascism is the scapegoating of uh, various others. And one of the big scapegoats, of course, for Trump, especially in this pandemic, has been China. Um, accusing you know China of bringing the virus and so on, and and then of course heightening tensions with China more generally. And this seems to be not just Trump. It seems to be that the military-industrial complex in the United States is actually kind of um, on board with uh, the demonization of China. And as a matter of fact, uh, Biden has even promised to be just as tough or tougher against China than than Trump. And uh, so um, this kind of uh, begs the question then. Well, you know, if uh, if this military industrial complex is uh, global, uh, why wage war against another sector of its own class, so to speak? Um, what's going on here? Right. Well, even if we didn't have the threat of fascism, the contradictions of capitalism, the inequality 
the incredible levels of inequality and so forth, means that you need to somehow externalize the tensions, the political and social tensions, the anxiety we were speaking about. Uh, you need to externalize it. And so one way, of course, is scapegoating communities such as immigrants. Um, and the other is through an external enemy. I mean, that was the key role in the Cold War of, of the so-called communist threat. So China and Russia, at least for the Democrats, both China and Russia now is this um, is is a mechanism. This the, the aggression, the hostility with China and with Russia is a mechanism for uh, externalizing these tensions that are internal to the political system in the United States and to each country. Each country, it's internal to global capitalism and its own contradictions. So that's part of the same phenomenon. You have state-coded communities such as immigrants, and then you have externalizing this through geopolitical tensions. But here's the thing. Once those, those geopolitical attention, tensions become extremely dangerous because they take on a life of their own. They absolutely take on a life of their own. But you do have a contradiction between transnational capital that wants to freely accumulate both in the United States and in China and in Russia and anywhere in the global economy without any impediments to its movement and its profit making all around the world. And you have the leading transnational corporations are thoroughly invested in China. They're thoroughly interlocked with some leading Chinese private and many of the state firms as well in China. So China is integrated into global capitalism. It's interlocked in that integration with US-based, European-based, uh, so forth, uh, transnational capital. So you don't really have a economic contradiction between capitalist, capitalist groups, the big giant capitalist groups coming from different parts of the global economy. But you have this political contradiction and this political tension and the role of fanning the flames of war with China and Russia being an externalization of tensions, in, you know, politically internal to global capitalism. So that's the thing. We have this disjunction between an economic reality and a political reality, a reality of political crisis. And that can't be resolved in any easy way. And I am very fearful also that remember that wars, and I'm talking about so-called little wars, like um, not little for the people that suffer them, but Yemen, Syria, but big wars like the U.S. and China, the U.S. or Europe, Europe and, and Russia. The role that wars have historically played in um, in uh, responding to the crisis of legitimacy of capitalism and to um, uh, sublimating all of these tensions of capitalist crisis towards war and jingoism uh, and, and and nationalism. And in this age of 21st century weaponry, any major war would signal the end of humanity. Mm. Now, for the past 40 or so minutes, we've been talking a lot of gloom and doom. So let's try to turn to what the possible answers or uh, responses could be to the situation. And of course, one of the big ones that, uh, that some people have uh, suggested, and which you mentioned briefly uh, earlier, was uh, the idea of some kind of uh, global redistribution of wealth of um i guess what you could what some have also called a kind of global keynesianism perhaps uh where uh, <clears throat> where the inequalities between the countries and within the countries are somehow ameliorated uh on a global level in order to uh, address this crisis of uh over accumulation of, and of inequality uh what do you think of that i mean that's this this global keynesianism kind of solution that people such as i guess you could say joseph stiglitz and jeffrey sachs and other economists have proposed and i guess to some extent the democrats are part of that idea although they haven't really made that explicit right and i discussed that of course in the book in the final chapter the the um the um 
reformists among the transnational elite that are pushing for a global Keynesianism, a global redistribution. And then certainly this opens up the po real possibilities and really the urgency of, of multi-class political coalitions and alliances, a class, but which I'll get to in just a moment. But uh, certainly there's plenty we need to be fighting for short of 21st century socialism. Eventually socialism is you know the only real viable solution to capitalism uh, and all of its discontents. But we need a massive redistribution of wealth and power downwards. Uh, and that would look like restoring social welfare systems, particularly health uh, and educational systems, uh, massive programs of massive public investment, uh, progressive taxation rather than the re regressive taxation that we have now, um, state regulation of corporate capital, re-regulating tr uh, transnational corporate capital, a tax on financial speculation, obviously um, ecological measures and a green, green New Deal. I mean, all of these are dimensions of a uh, program of radical reform from below, which might involve alliances between the global working class and progressive sectors with reformist-oriented elements of the elite. I mean, you mentioned some of the leading uh, figures associated with that, just, as, just such as Joseph Stiglitz. But I also want to point out, you know, in this regard, that um, a massive global revolt, revolt was underway before the pandemic. Remember that 2019 was the fall of 2019 was the fall of this incredible upsurge in global revolt. Remember Chile, Lebanon, Iraq, uh, the, the Yellow Vest movement in, in France, here yeah. in the United States. I mean, there was a wave of strikes in 2018, 2019 here in the United States, which was the biggest wave of strikes since the, I think, the early 1970s, led by the teachers in all different sectors. So there is this massive revolt already underway. And it's that pressure from below, which will push us towards, at least in the shorter term, towards some type of a global New Deal, a global green uh, New Deal. But there's also, and of course, the, the revolt was taken off the streets by the pandemic, but that's temporary. People are already back on the streets right here in the United States, but also also in Chile, also in Lebanon uh, and elsewhere. But we do have a problem that we need to address. Those of us on the left and those of us just trying to bring about progressive social change and and um, and undercut the threat of fascism. And it's that we have this this um, burgeoning of social movements. Very often, they're not even social movements. They're simply spontaneous. But even when they are social movements, we have that this at a time when the left is in this deep institutional crisis, this deep political crisis. There's no significant socialist left. So you have that disjuncture. Um, and so we desperately need, as we fight back, we need a uh, a revitalized left, a revitalized democratic left that can link up with and give some long term vision to these all of these mass uh, social movements and the spontaneous rebellion um, from below. And we also need to rebuild in new ways. And this is part of what I also get into in the book. We haven't had a chance to discuss it, but our worker organizations. Um, and, you know, we haven't spoken about surplus humanity and also about the precarious nature of work. But we really need to fight back to push for that um, reform program that we were talking about. We need a triangulation of social movements with worker organizations and trade unions and with revolutionary political organizations or left organizations. And we don't have that at at, um, at this point. Uh, so that's something we really need to think about. And then finally, I'd also say on this point that at this moment, at this extremely dangerous moment, and other people have been calling for this, we need an anti-fascist united uh, front uh, desperately involving multi-class coalitions to present, prevent fascism. But I think within this united front, the popular sectors, the working class sectors should not dilute the um, demands for 
redistribution and more radical transformation. Mm. Well, I think that's one of the things, of course, that every time there's a, uh, some kind of coming together, there does seem to be a demand that this, we need a different solution in the long term, at least some, uh, people on the left uh, you know, have been proposing for some kind of uh, redistribution as a solution, as, as a response to really Trumpism. Uh, in other words, that we can't go back to the neoliberal uh, status quo ante uh, that we had under right. Obama. But um, but you also said that uh, the um, that uh, this can't uh, this kind of a, a global Keynesianism and reform this program can't be a long term solution. And I'm wondering, uh, well, explain why why do you think that's not a longer term solution? Because clearly, some of these economists that I was referring to do think it is. Right. Well, it's a more it's a more of a longer term solution than global police state or than fascism, but. A, it's not a long-term solution because as long as we have capitalism, the impulse for simply for any economic activity to take place, for people to be able to go into a factory, to a plantation, to a mine, to a service center and work, uh, has to be profitable. That is the what drives capitalism. It ha you have to accumulate. Everything has to be profitable. Everything has to be commodified. And to the ex unless states are able to suppress enough of the drive to accumulate capital to override its most you know its most glaring impulse um then this is not viable but we don't have a global state in other words what i'm trying to say is that in order for a global keynesianism or a global redistribution to take place you need to massively tax transnational capital and you need to be able to capture surpluses right states need to be able to capture surpluses and states then need to redistribute those surpluses downward through social spending and public employment and so forth and so on but there's no global state so that takes place at the level of the nation state but capital has gone transnational that's the key you know one of the key uh, theoretical premises of my whole theory of global capitalism that as capitalism capital broke free of the nation state in the late 20th century in order to get around the ability of mass social movements, of trade unions, of worker struggles to control capital. That was what we had in the in from the 1960s and 50s, 60s and 70s and on. We had mass social movements, mass worker struggles, forcing capital uh, to be heavily taxed and heavily regulated, heavily controlled. And that was the nation state Keynesianism. So capital wants to break out of that to resume its profit making and its profit maximization and it launches globalization. It breaks free of the nation state. And so in, unless there's some political power that can clamp down on transnational capital now to implement that a global Keynesian program, um, it's going to be very, very uh, untenable. Uh, so certainly, if we can find those mechanisms, um, some of the worst edges of the crisis can be ameliorated, not just in the short term, but maybe in the in the midterm. But then there's the other issue of the ecological crisis. Right, the existential crisis. And even if, let's say, uh, stagnation were temporarily overcome through a global Keynesianism and the global economy, um, you know, started to stabilize with high growth, growth rates, there's, we're still headed towards this ecological collapse and absolute disaster. And that brings the ability of a global Keynesianism within the logic of capital accumulation, uh, to a more tenuous situation. Hmm. 
Now, it seems to me, though, that, um, of course, if you're talking about um, kind of an anti-capitalist solution, a socialist solution to the crises that we're facing, at least on a, if they happen on a national level, they would face the same problem of transnational capital. As a matter of fact, you can say that every time a country, no matter where, has tried that kind of a national kind of uh, solution, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, anti-capitalist uh, option, it uh, it failed precisely because uh, because it was still embedded in the in the global capitalist system. Now, does that mean then that the only thing that's uh, really an alternative is is a global socialism? And if so, how do we get there? <laughs> no, yeah, really great question. Well, of course, that's the story of the last four decades. That as capital went global, individual nation states cannot really design their own political economic system, and the first big uh, you know, the first time that lesson was brought home was 1983, when Mitterrand um, came to power. He came to power, I think, in 82. Uh, and in 83, he had to completely reverse his initial social democratic program of taxing capital and redistribution and expanding the social welfare state in France. That was right. the famous example that even a rich country like France, one of the core countries of the world capitalist system, uh, had to simply bow down to the demands of transnational capital in the early 1980s. So much less Venezuela. Uh, Cuba, any country in the world can simply create its own internal system and resist the pressures of transnational capital. It's global financial markets and the global investors now dictate policies and restrict anything that a particular country or nation state can, can do. Absolutely. Um, and so, again, that's the story of the last 40 years of capitalist globalization. But what this means is that if we're talking about a fight back, if we're talking about solutions, it has to be transnational. And mm. so we need transnational struggle. I mean, I've been talking about this for the last 30 years, but I'm not alone now anymore. Everyone is talking about the urgent need for national struggles to be coordinated transnationally for transnational social movements, transnational programs that, every, that we agree on across borders and fight for. I mean, this, this discussion is not new. The Progressive International is this, you know, forum that I'm sure many listeners are familiar. It was formed earlier this year, um, sort of not to replace, but to move beyond what remained of the World Social Forum. And this time it includes political organizations, not just social movements. And this time it's talking about a actual platform, a collective platform of struggle across borders. So that's the direction we need to be moving in. And I'm going to say something which has been said over and over for the last 30 years. If capital has transnationalized, resistance to it has to. But that means coordinating struggles across borders. So when capital um, moves from one place to another or uh, and finances move from one place to another, that there's coordinated resistance and a coordinated response. Um, so, again, that's what everyone's talking about. And that's very positive sign with the progressive international. Okay, well... I think that's a very good note to end on. <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground in a very broad sense, but I think it was really an excellent discussion that, and I highly recommend everybody to read the book on uh, global, the global police state. Uh, I was speaking to William Robinson, professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara and, uh, and author of that book, The Global Police State, published by Pluto Press. Thanks again, Bill, for having joined me today. Thanks so much for having me on. Once again, I'm Greg Wilpert, guest host for the Analysis.News podcast. If you like this and other Analysis.News podcasts, please head over to our website and make a donation so we can keep this going. Thanks again for having tuned in today.